0: But let's just go ahead and open with a word today. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 18 today. We're going to go ahead and read through uh, the first part of the chapter, first half, verses 1 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Uh, We've noticed uh, in our study of the book of Acts so far that Paul has started to confine his ministry almost exclusively to the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. We said this was part of his strategy, that he was going to focus on the cities. If you look at the beginning of Paul's ministry, that does not appear to be the case. Now, true, uh, he set off from a great city, one of the great cities of the ancient world, Antioch and Syria. But when you read through the first part of the Acts uh, that describes Paul's missionary journeys, one of the things that you notice is that Paul focuses on whole regions. For example, he went down to the Isle of Cyprus and preached all over the island. But all of a sudden, on this second missionary journey in particular, we begin to see Paul focusing on the great metropolitan areas. And we said that there's a very good reason for that. Uh, Paul wanted to get the gospel out to as many people as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that was to focus on the great cities of the ancient world, where everything came and went. And so we've seen that. Uh, Paul had gone, for instance, to Athens, and he had been to Ephesus, and he had preached in all of those places, these great cities. Well, now here in Acts chapter 18, he comes to what is probably the greatest city thus far. And in my own personal opinion, one of the most interesting, if for no other reason than it is a city most like the cities that you and I are familiar with today. Um, Athens was a a great city, there's no doubt about that, but it's very different from the way cities are today. Uh, The same thing might be true for Philippi, but Corinth, Corinth was a city very much like the kinds of cities. If, if you were to walk down Corinth, uh, down the great street, uh, in the main street uh, there in Corinth, you would have been very comfortable in, in the sense that while the culture would have been different, nevertheless what you would have seen would have been the sort of thing you would see in a place like Chicago or New York or even London today. So Corinth is a remarkable place. What can we say about it? Because we need to understand the background to understand what Paul was facing. Well, first thing was that Paul spent more time in Corinth than he had in any other place up to this point. So not only do we see him focusing on the great cities, but he is beginning to refine this missionary strategy. Uh, Up to this point, Paul had visited some other great cities, but he hadn't spent much time in them. Uh, At most, he had spent a couple of months. Most of the time, he spent a couple of weeks, and then he moved on to the next place. He was itinerant. But from here on out, we're going to see that Paul is going to invest considerable, amount of t- considerable amounts of time in various places. Uh, that's different. Uh, for instance, he spends a year and a half here in Corinth. And we're going to see that he's going to go on to other places like Philippi and, and uh, elsewhere, or to Ephesus rather, and elsewhere. And we're going to see that he's going to spend significant amounts of time there. Two years, as a matter of fact and then he's going to go on to Jerusalem and he'll spend a considerable amount of time there, and then to Caesarea Maritima, and then ultimately to Rome. So we're going to begin to see Paul focusing not only on the cities, but investing considerable amounts of time in the places where he is. He's still itinerant, he's not meaning to set down roots in any of these places, but nevertheless he's beginning to spend significant amounts of time in these places. Now what was it about Corinth that attracted Paul? If he's beginning to focus on these great cities, it's obvious why he was attracted to Athens. It was the great intellectual center of the ancient world. What was it about Corinth that attracted Paul? I'm sorry? Doing the Corinthian. Well, doing the Corinthian was not a good thing in the first century, and we'll talk about that in a moment. I want to suggest to you three things that were significant about Corinth. Uh, Three words that will help you understand what Corinth was like in the first century because Corinth begins with the letter C, so do these things. One of the things that was remarkable about Corinth was its location. Those of you who are realtors recognize that location is everything. What do they say? Location, location, location. Uh, You can buy a small house down here on the peninsula or you can go into North Charleston and pay the same price and buy an enormous house. Uh, What's the difference? Well, the difference is location, location, location location and Corinth had an ideal location. It was one of the great commercial ports, some would say the great commercial port of the ancient world. It was located on a narrow isthmus that divided the northern part of Greece from the southern part of Greece. southern part of Greece commonly referred to as the Peloponnese. The isthmus was this narrow piece of land separating these two areas, which meant that all commerce, going north to south and vice versa, south to north, had to travel through Corinth. So anything that was traveling from the mainland down to the Peloponnese or back had to go through Corinth. It had to cross that narrow isthmus of land. It also meant that anything, any goods that were traveling from east to west or west to east uh, from the Adriatic over to the Aegean Sea likewise had to come through this narrow isthmus through Corinth. Now we look at a map and we think to ourselves well the easier way to transport goods if you're coming from east to west or west to east would not be to travel through Corinth. Why? Because it was an isthmus, it was a piece of land. In the first century what you had to do was you would dock on the Aegean side or the Adriatic side and you would unload all your ships and all of your goods would be transported overland on carts, normally drawn by slaves. It was a very time-consuming and difficult journey. We say, well, the better thing to do is just to sail south around the Peloponnese and into the Aegean. Well, easier for us. Not easier in the first century. Uh, Remember, they didn't have accurate charts in those days. They didn't have any kind of means of predicting what the weather was going to be like. They didn't have radios. They didn't have sonars. They didn't have any of that sort of thing. Sea travel in the first century was hazardous, extremely hazardous. And what appears to us to be a very simple journey was a very complicated and dangerous journey in the first century. So if people were traveling with goods, From the Adriatic over to the Aegean Sea, you had to come through to this narrow isthmus, unload everything, and it had to go through Corinth. So Corinth was at the very crossroads of trade and commerce in the ancient world. Now It was quite significant, so significant in fact that during the time of Nero, they actually tried to dig a canal across the isthmus. But they discovered that it was practically impossible to do, and they gave up. It would not be until the 19th century that a canal would be dug across the isthmus so that goods could be transported more easily. Uh, That canal is still there to this day, and uh, ships still come through it. There it is. So you can see from the Aegean to the Adriatic Sea. And if you go with me at some point, because that will probably be the next journey. Many of you have been to the Holy Land. Uh, My hope is that the next journey will be in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. Corinth is one of the places that we will go. And you can actually stand there and look down on this canal. And if you're lucky, you can even see a ship going through. Whenever Jesus talked about a camel going through the eye of a needle, this is what I imagine. (laughs) The Corinthian Canal, (laughs) but that is a real cruise ship. I don't know if you can see, but there are lines down here in the front. It's actually being pulled through by a tug. Uh, No one would dare try to navigate their way through that. Um, But those ships are still there and they still go through on a daily basis. So it's still in use. It just goes to show us that Corinth is still a significant place. It was a great place of commerce. Um, the ruins of the city are still there to this day. And uh, that's the main street there in Corinth. And what is great about it is that all of those openings that you see there were shops. So just imagine Gucci right there and, uh, and uh, whatever else. Lily Pulitzer or whatever else you've got there. That was the main city. And so it was a place of great commercial activity. All of this trade going north to south, trade going east to west. It was a place where there were shops. It was an exciting place to be. It was an exciting place to be, Corinth. So it was a great commercial port. What's the second C to describe Corinth? It was cosmopolitan. As a consequence of its location, as a consequence of its commercial significance, it was a cosmopolitan city. Uh, most of the cities in the ancient world, in the ancient world, were more or less homogenous, monolithic in terms of their population. Now, of course, all cities have to some degree a mixture of people. But in the ancient world, even though there was a slight mixture in these cities, for the most part, the cities had a certain flavor to them, a certain temperament to them. Uh, we took a look at Philippi. When Paul was in Philippi, we said that the temperament of Philippi was that it was a very Roman city. It had been settled by former citizens or soldiers of the Roman army. And as a consequence, they were people who prided themselves in the fact that they were Roman. And there was a very Roman flavor. Now, of course, the whole world was Rome in that day but some cities had a different flavor. They weren't necessarily Roman in their mentality. Jerusalem, for instance, was by no means, it may have been governed by the Romans, but it was by no means Roman in its outlook or its flavor. It was Very Jewish. But Philippi was very Roman. They prided themselves. In fact, you'll remember that one of the charges that they brought against Paul and Silas was that these men were Jews who were advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to practice. So Philippi was a very Roman city. We said that Athens had a particular flavor as well. Uh, It was, as I said, in the late afternoon of its glory. But Athens was nevertheless the great intellectual center of the ancient world. It's where all of the great minds gathered. And so when Paul went there, we're told that he debated with what? The great philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he had a debate with them on Mars Hill before the Areopagus, this great debating society. And so these cities had their own flavor. But Corinth was totally different. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. It was a great melting pot. Every kind of people you can imagine, every kind of culture you could imagine, every kind of community that you could imagine. And that's why I say what's particularly exciting about Corinth is that it is a city very much like the kinds of cities that we are familiar with today. Most of our great cities, when I talk about great cities, I'm talking about big, world-class cities like Chicago or New York or London. Those are cities that are great melting pots. There are all kinds of people, all kinds of economic situations, all kinds of little neighborhoods. There's a, a little Italy over here, or, or there's Chinatown over there. It's a great melting pot. You can see any kind of person imaginable. People from other countries come to these great cities to study in our universities. And so it's a great mixture, a great melting pot. That's the way Corinth was in the ancient world. If you walk down a street in Corinth, you would probably see something very much like this. Something that you and I would be very familiar with. So, this was a great commercial center that Paul went to. It was a very cosmopolitan center, which is significant, because if Paul could establish a Christian presence in that kind of a place, then these people, when they went back to their homelands, would be taking what with them? The Gospel. So, when you think about Corinth, what was Corinth like? That's the second C, cosmopolitan. So, it's a commercial place, it's a cosmopolitan city, Here's the third C. It was corrupt. In fact, it was probably the most notorious city in the first century. In fact, the word Corinthianize was just another way of saying to be involved in sexual misbehavior. If somebody called you a Corinthian, and you were not from Corinth, that was not a compliment. It was one of the most corrupt cities of the ancient world. Now, there were a number of reasons for this. To begin with, it was a seaside town. There were lots of sailors who had been away at sea, and they were lonely. And they came back looking for company. And they found it there, because there was a great temple there, great temple there, one of the wonders of the ancient world in Corinth, dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. Or, as she was otherwise known, Venus. Now, if you know your ancient history, Greek or Roman, who was Aphrodite, who was Venus? She was the goddess of love. And there was this great temple there dedicated to Aphrodite that at one point, estimates reach as high as 10,000 prostitutes worked in that temple. 10,000 prostitutes plying their trade and servicing the wants and the desires of the sailors as they came through. Question? Well, I would say that um, nothing ever starts out exactly that way, um, but what I would say was that it was actually worse before, uh, in the time period before Paul got there. Um, it had actually sort of slacked off a bit by the time that Paul got there, and it was still bad. It was still fabulous Sin City, Corinth. It was a notorious place. It was like Las Vegas. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. But that was the place to which the Apostle Paul came. And we get a sense of this when you read through Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. Uh, If you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, which of course were letters that were written to the church that Paul established here, it becomes very clear what this city was like. All right? Uh, Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. Keep your finger there in Acts and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to these people because they had been immersed in this kind of a culture. They had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their hearts were changed, but they were still surrounded by temptation. Still surrounded by temptation. You know, people say, well, our world is, is worse off than the world of, of my parents and my grandparents. Well, it's not because human nature has changed. It's just that there are more opportunities, more temptations in our day, more opportunities to sin than there were probably in your parents' day. I mean, uh, not to be crude or anything about this, but if you were a little boy in my day and age and you wanted to see a naked lady, the only way you could do that was to go into the store and get a Playboy magazine and and put Sports Illustrated in front of it so that nobody knew what you were looking at. And that was risky because in a little town like where I grew up, now you know I never did this sort of thing, but at any rate, in in the kind of town that I grew up, there was always the chance that you were going to run into somebody that knew you. And if they knew you, they were going to pull you by the ear and say, I can't believe your mother is not going to... And that just sent chills up your spine. Well, now, I'm just talking from what I've heard in the confessional. (laughs) Now, you don't even need a magazine, you've got this. And it's one click away, and nobody knows. You see how these things are more readily available to us? It's not that human nature has changed. It's just that we have more opportunities. The scripture talks about the evil day. you ever hear the expression, the evil day? Do you know what the evil day is? The evil day that the scripture talks about, avoid the evil day. The evil day is when our desires and our opportunities meet. You know, there are times in life when we have a desire to sin, but we don't have the opportunity. There are other times in life when you have the opportunity to sin, but you really don't have the desire. The evil day, my friends, is when the desire and the opportunity meet. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Because the Bible said that's the only way to avoid it, is to flee it. To flee the temptation. That was a very difficult thing to do in a place like Corinth. And as I said, when you read through the first epistle to the Corinthians, that becomes very clear. Paul was writing to people who had embraced Jesus Christ, but they were surrounded by all of these temptations and they were drifting back. Drifting back into old practices. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses nine through 11, he describes this. He said, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Why do you think he was talking about sexual immorality? <laughs> the city of Aphrodite, city of Venus. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds this, and such were some of you. See, that's the picture of Corinth in the first century. But you were washed, he said, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when you read through First and Second Corinthians, you get, a, you get a taste of what Paul was dealing with when he arrived in this city, this remarkable city, this great commercial port, this cosmopolitan melting pot, and this very corrupt place. Is that a picture of our cities today? You better believe it's a picture of our cities today, isn't it? Now you have to pause and you have to ask yourself, when Paul arrived here in Corinth, what was he feeling? We talked a little bit about how Paul felt. And we have to, I think we have to do this from time to time because you have to remember Paul was not some sort of plaster saint. He was flesh and blood. He was like you and me. And we talked about the fact that when he went to Athens, Paul was probably very excited about the prospect of going to Athens because he had been trained as a Pharisee, had a very fine education, a religious education. All the indicators suggest to us that he had a very fine secular education. He grew up in Tarsus, which was one of the great university cities of the ancient world, and he was able to engage the philosophers and even quote from Aratus and Cleanthes, which indicate to us that Paul knew these people, so I always always imagined Paul going to Athens and being excited about it. I said it would be like a Harvard man going to Oxford to visit a university very much like his own, but even more distinguished and older. And yet when Paul got there, what happened? He was very discouraged. Very discouraged by what he saw because the city was filled with idols. I suspect it was something very similar here in Corinth. How was Paul feeling when he arrived there In this great city. I want to suggest to you that he was probably weary and discouraged. Now that's not just Miller's sanctified speculation, I promise you. I think the indicators to us in the book of Acts and in the epistles are that Paul was very discouraged and very weary when he got there. First of all, we have to remember that the missionary journeys up to this point had been anything but easy. On that first missionary journey, Paul had faced opposition in nearly every place that he went. In some places, in the case of Lystra, he had faced physical abuse. Remember that he had been stoned. Well, let me tell you, stoning in the ancient world was designed to kill somebody. The first Christian martyr was Stephen, who we looked at earlier in the book of Acts. He was killed by stoning. The very first Christian martyr, the first person to die for their faith after the Lord Jesus Christ was stoned to death. Paul was stoned in the case of Lystra. And we're told that he fell into an unconscious state, which indicates to us that the people may have thought that he was already dead, and they left him alone. We're told that after that, Paul revived, whether or not it was a period of revival or whether God miraculously healed him, we don't know. But what we do know is that Paul fell into an unconscious state as a consequence of these missiles coming at him. He had been beaten with rods and Philippi, hadn't he? That was one of the cruellest forms of Roman punishment. He had been thrown into jail. He'd been put in the stocks. and This had not been an easy journey. And then, of course, he'd had that breakup with Barnabas. They had disagreed about John, Mark, and so his old buddy had gone off to do his own thing, and Paul had to depart and take others with him. And then when he got to Athens, he found that the city was filled with idols. He tried to bring the Gospel to them, but if you read through Acts chapter 17, all the indicators us that Paul was not altogether successful in Athens. We said last week or two weeks ago, we said that the reality is it's hard to minister to the yeah. That's a difficult task because they take great pride in their intellect. And we're told that when at the end of chapter 17, when the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Some. But many mocked. Others said, we're not so sure about this. Perhaps we'll listen to you later. All the indicators suggest to us that only a few actually believed. How would you feel if you'd been through that kind of a period of ministry? Paul must have been very discouraged. He had faced opposition and ridicule, physical abuse, meager results in Athens. Here's something else. He was alone. Remember that he had left his companions behind. So, Silas is not with him. Luke is not with him. He's all by himself. I can tell you, of all the feelings in the world, and there are many terrible feelings, being absolutely alone is perhaps the worst. That just sense that you are all by yourself. What's the worst punishment that you can inflict upon a prisoner? Solitary confinement. Why is that the worst thing in the world? Because you and I were created to be in fellowship. You know, if you read through the book of Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis, one of the things you'll notice is that after each act of creation, God blesses what he has made and he looks upon it and he says, it is good, it is good. And he creates man and he says, it is very good. But then you get to one point in the creation narrative where God looks on what he has made and he said, it is not good. And that's when? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. I've said this many times before, cats are solitary creatures. They don't need us. But we need each other. Now, there are times when we don't like each other. There are times when we don't want to be around other human beings. I get that. But the reality is we need other human beings. Especially in times of difficulty. We need somebody to help buoy us up, to encourage us. By the time Paul got here to Corinth, he was all alone. Here's something else that we can derive from the text. Paul was living hand to mouth. How do we know that? Because for the first time we find reference to him working with his hands. We're told that he met a couple that had come from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, and they were tent makers. And Paul had to take up his old trade. He had been trained as a tent maker. This was part of the Jewish tradition that you might have had a fine education, but the Jews believed that you needed to have a trade as well. And so Paul had been trained as a tent maker. And for the first time, we see him working with his hands in order to make money. That suggests to us that up to this point, the church had been supplying Paul with what he needed. They were the ones that sent him off on the journey, and presumably they had supplied him with the with the things that he needed, financial assistance, for example. But by this point, those funds have run out. Perhaps he had left some of those funds behind with his companions so that they could carry on his work, and by the time he got here, all of that had been exhausted. So his results, in many places, had been meager. He had faced opposition, at some points physical persecution. He had no friends, and he was living hand to mouth. How do you think he felt? He felt what? Discouraged, absolutely. The reason I'm pointing this out to you is because I want you to understand sometimes we feel that way. Don't you feel that way sometimes in the Christian life? A little discouraged, a little bit alone, like nobody understands what you're going through? Don't you feel isolated and discouraged at the meager results of the efforts? You're trying everything that you know, and yet nothing seems to be working. Furthermore, when Paul got there, we're told that he went to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Paul went first and foremost when he came to Corinth to where? To the synagogue. and He preached the gospel there to his own people and we're told that his own people refused to believe. In fact, eventually they would bring charges against him. That must have been very disappointing because this had been Paul's policy all along to take the gospel first to the Jews. And now he finds that even the Jews reject him. I think it must have been very difficult for Paul to arrive in a place like Corinth. The opportunities were great, but the challenges were even greater. And he must have been very discouraged, very lonely, very weary. And yet, it is at this point that God brings encouragement. Um, Yesterday was the birthday of C.S. Lewis. And um, as I was thinking about Lewis and thinking about my own situation and the situation for St. Philip's and the Diocese of South Carolina, I was reminded of this particular quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, We have no doubt that God is doing the best for us. We just wonder how painful the best is going to be. Ever feel that way in your life? You know that God is doing the best for you, but you can't help but wonder how painful that best is going to be. What he said was he sent um, Ananias to lay hands on Paul. And at that point, Ananias said, I I don't think so. I think you got the wrong guy. And the Lord said, no, Paul's my instrument. And Ananias said, no, I think I'm the wrong guy. I don't want to go. And the Lord said, you go. I will teach him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All that's true. But how many of us, I mean, if you're a Christian today, My only response to that would be, if you're a Christian today, you should know that it's not going to be easy. Nowhere in the scripture does it ever say that follow Jesus Christ and all your troubles are going to melt away. It's going to be easy from here on out. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. He said, as the world hated me, so the world's going to hate you. If the world mistreated me, the world's going to mistreat you. There's nowhere in the scripture. Now, that may be what televangelists tell you and that sort of thing, but let me tell you, the scripture is very clear. If you follow Jesus Christ, it is the way of the cross. Anyone would be one of my disciples, he must first take up his cross and follow me. So it is one thing to know that intellectually, but nevertheless, you're not prepared for it. None of us can be prepared for it. Anybody thinks, oh, I'm ready for it. They're a fool. You're not ready for it. I knew when I was ordained to the ministry that I was going to face opposition and difficulty and there are going to be some people that didn't like the message. I never dreamed that I would face opposition from the quarters from which it is now coming. And you're going to find that to be true in your own lives. So while Paul, I think, was prepared for persecution... He just didn't know, there was no way for him to know, how intense, how difficult, how lonely, and how discouraging that was going to be. And I point that out to you because I want you to understand, when you're going through those moments, you're not alone. Don't think of Paul, oh, Paul was this this, this sort of courageous person, never faced difficulty. He was discouraged, and he was fearful. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of what happens next. We know that because of what happens next. The tide begins to turn. Look at verse five. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, Paul is occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Well, the first thing that happens is God sends a little relief. Paul is lonely, God knows it's not good for a man to be alone, and so what does he do? He sends Silas and Timothy to him. They come down from Macedonia. So at least there is someone with whom he could bear the burden. One of the most important things you can do in your Christian walk, in your Christian life, is spend time with other believers. I'm not talking about simply having a wide circle of friends. You can have a wide circle of friends, many of whom have no idea what you are going through. And even if they do know what you're going through, even if you have been raised with each other your whole lives, and even if they know what you are not going through, but they are not believers, they are not Christians, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with having non-believing friends. How else are you going to evangelize them? But, But if they do not share the faith that you have, how can they pray for you? How can they encourage you? How can they strengthen you? See, they can't. So, one of the most important things in the Christian life, and I encourage you not to neglect gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing. Let me encourage you to find circles of Christian friends and bear one another's burdens. It is so important. And that is the first relief that God sends to Paul here in Corinth. He sends Silas and Timothy. Second thing that happens is we're told with Silas and Timothy, financial assistance comes. Now, that's not here in this text, but it is in the second letter to the Corinthians. So keep your finger there in Acts and turn over to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. And Let me encourage you, when you're reading through a book like the book of Acts and you're reading about Paul's visit to Ephesus or Paul's visit to Philippi or Paul's, letter to the, or Paul's visit to the churches in Galatia, Read the letters that Paul then wrote to the churches cuz you get some backfill some, some backstory as to what was really taking place here. And that's exactly what happens here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 10 we read these words. Paul writes, "And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need." So Paul is writing to the church and he's saying, when I was with you, I was in need. But I did not burden anyone. I I worked with my hands. I worked as a tent maker. But eventually what happened? The brothers who came from Macedonia, and you flip back to Acts, and we're told Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. When the brothers arrived from Macedonia, what? They supplied my need. So we see God encouraging Paul in the midst of these difficult situations by sending him helpers, other people into the, his life that would support him, and he sent financial assistance as well. I was reading one commentator recently on this chapter, and he said the one question that he has for Christ, that he has for the Lord, he said, you know, he believes that God's going to have one of those Q&A sessions. And Jesus is going to sit down and everybody's going to get lined up and they're going to be able to ask all those questions that they have. How many of you have questions for the Lord? He said, oh, there are going to be all kinds of questions people are going to have. He said, you know what my question is? He said, I'm not going to ask about what was the right mode of baptism. He said, I'm not going to ask about eschatology, what's the right view of the end times. He said, I want to know one thing. He said, I want to know why. Some Christian organizations that were out there desperately trying to do the work of the Lord and proclaim the gospel sometimes lived hand to mouth while other organizations that had nothing to do with the gospel seemed to flourish and have more money than they know what to do with. He said, I don't know the answer to the question. That's why I want to ask the Lord someday. Do you know, we see that. You know, the church should never have to struggle. Especially in a country like this. We should never be hurting for money, ever. If people's lives are really transformed and they're giving generously for the work of the gospel, the church should never be hurting for money. We should have more than enough. And yet what you discover, what Paul discovered is that oftentimes, oftentimes the church is supported by a small, significantly small group of people. Some will give, some will give sacrificially, Like somebody once said, the difference between the chicken and the pig. You know the difference between the chicken and the pig when it comes to a country breakfast? The chicken makes an offering. The pig makes a sacrifice. Well, there are some people that will make an offering. Lay an egg. There are some that will make a sacrifice. Well, God sent Paul the financial assistance that he needed, and it made a difference. Next thing we notice is that God begins to bless Paul's efforts. Look at verse 7. And Paul left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now, contrast that with what happened in Athens. Only a few believed, but all of a sudden we are told that leaders in the community begin to believe, and what else? Many begin to believe. So, encouragement is coming to Paul. First of all, his companions arrive from Macedonia. Second of all, they begin to supply his financial needs so that he is freed up. He no longer has to work as a tent maker. He can be about the work of preaching the gospel. God begins to bless Paul's efforts. What happens next? We're told that God spoke to Paul. You know, that's what we're really waiting for, isn't it? We want to hear God speak to us. Give us a word of encouragement. Give us guidance. Give us direction. And he did that. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid But go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. Now that's what Jesus said. He said to the disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then what? For lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. Now, mind you, Jesus never says, I will take away all your difficulty. What Jesus said is, I will be with you in the midst of your difficulty. You'll never be totally alone. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Well, those words are exactly what Paul is getting right here. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What did God say? The first thing he said is, do not be afraid in verse 9. Do not be afraid, Paul. Why did God say to Paul, do not be afraid? Because he was. God doesn't waste words. When you go up to somebody and you say, don't be discouraged, why are you telling them that? Because chances are they are discouraged. So when God comes to Paul and he says, do not be afraid, it's because Paul what? He is afraid. Now, we can't even imagine that, can we? We think of Paul as this sort of towering figure, afraid? Yeah, he was afraid. If you have been through what Paul had been through, you'd be afraid too. So if you're ever afraid in your Christian life, you're not alone. Paul was afraid. What was he afraid of? Well, afraid of persecution, physical abuse, afraid of failure, that he's going to try to preach the gospel and people are not going to listen to him. They're going to mock him. Do you ever worry about that when you, when you have the job of going out and sharing the gospel? Do you ever, are you ever afraid of failure? Sometimes fear of failure is the most paralyzing thing of all, much worse than any fear of physical harm. You're afraid that you'll be a flop. The Lord said, Do not be afraid. Next thing he said to Paul was this keep on speaking keep on speaking. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What does that mean? Well, it probably means a couple of things. First of all, it probably means God was saying to Paul, don't stop witnessing, go on, keep keep at it, don't stop. Keep on keeping on, keep doing what you've been doing. So in a general sense, it means keep on witnessing. In a more specific sense, I think it means keep on witnessing the way you're witnessing, verbally. You know, sometimes in the church when we think to ourselves, well, I just don't know if preaching's going to do the job. we got to come up with something flashier than that. Let's do some liturgical dance. Maybe that'll work. You know, let's bring in some smoke machines. Let's do that sort of thing. Let's paint the sanctuary black and bring out all the lights and all that sort of thing. What we're trying to do is what? We're trying to get people into the church. But there's an old expression, what you win them with is what you win them to. If the way you get them into the church is by means of entertainment, then that's what you have won them to, entertainment. And I can almost guarantee you, they're always going to be looking for more and better entertainment. And I can tell you right now, because the church does struggle financially, we'll never be able to keep up with the world. We'll never be able to entertain people in the same way that the cinema does. We just cannot do it. And if all you want is good music, you can go to the symphony. And believe me, symphony tickets are a lot cheaper than a pledge. So you see, there are all kinds of things that Paul could have done besides simply share the gospel. I want you to understand something. There is only one thing that the church has to offer to the world that the world cannot get somewhere else, flashier and cheaper. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the only thing unique that you and I can offer to the world that it cannot get someplace else. So why would we give up on the one thing that makes us unique? Paul says, you just keep on preaching. Keep on witnessing the way you have been. He says, I am with you. We've already talked about this. Jesus had said the same thing to his disciples. I am with you. Then Paul heard these words, and I think this is very significant. It applies specifically to Paul. But the Lord said to him, no one is going to attack you or harm you. That was a specific word to Paul. No one is going to do you any physical harm. Now, that did not mean that Paul would face no physical harm in the future, because he did. He was attacked in Jerusalem. He was imprisoned in Caesarea Maritima. He was beheaded in Rome. But what it did mean is that in this particular situation, God was speaking to Paul, and he said, nobody's going to harm you. I put a hedge of protection Around you. And finally, he said this, and I think in many ways, this was perhaps the most encouraging thing to Paul at all of all. He said, For I have many in this city who are my people. Can you imagine what that would have meant for Paul. He'd given his whole life over to this evangelistic endeavor, he'd given his whole life over to sharing the gospel with others and to be told, You take heart. You're not going to fail. Why? Because I have many people in this city. I've already said how did Paul respond to God's message well. we said he tweaked his missionary strategy. He spent one and a half years in Corinth, two years in Ephesus, two years in Caesarea Maritima, and even longer in Rome. What does this all mean for us? Paul arrived in Corinth, and Corinth was a city so much like the cities of our day, our age. What does this mean for us? What are we supposed to derive from this? It teaches us that we are to persevere in the Christian life. It teaches us that it's not always going to be easy. That there is going to be opposition. There are going to be times when you are discouraged and there are going to be times when you are afraid, and there are going to be times when you just want to throw in the towel. I have no doubt that there were times when Paul thought about throwing in the towel. I think at the end of that first missionary journey, it is a wonder that he ever went on a second missionary journey. I've always said that. I mean, every place he went, he was driven from pillar to post, and yet he went on a second missionary journey. And, and he set off, and in all those places, meager results. I would have thought that by the time he arrived in Corinth and saw what that city was like, saw all the opposition, realized that he was all by himself, recognized that he didn't do much good out there in Athens, I think I would have been like, if I had been Paul, I probably would have said, you know, I don't need this. How many of you have ever said that in your life? I've, I've tried to do a good thing here, and no good deed goes unpunished. How many of you have ever said in your life, I don't need this? Let's see a show of hands if you've ever used those words before. I don't need this. I suspect Paul felt that way. We feel that way. I don't need this. But he pressed on. See, Paul was placed in Corinth for a reason. He was placed there because God did have people in that city. I think it's very interesting that God said, I have people in this city. What does that tell us? It means God had already chosen to save some. Paul was simply going to be the instrument by which they were brought to Christ, but God had already appointed them. He said, I have people in this city. Well, listen, in Corinth there were no Christians, let me tell you right now, until Paul got there. So how can God said, I have people in this city? It's because God had already determined that he had people in this city. Turn to Romans for just a second. I want to show you something. Romans chapter 8. This is pretty deep theology we're going to jump into real quick. One of the great passages in Romans 8, of course, Romans 8 is a great, great epistle. But when you get to Romans 8, you have these great words. And they are words that we frequently um, use at funerals, and it's understandable why. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. For in this hope, verse 24, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's my favorite Bible passage. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, skip over to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who then, and here are the great passages that we hear at funerals, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody says, oh, hallelujah. But how do we know that's real? How do you know that nothing is ever going to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord? How do you know that? You know in your knower. Well, that's great. That's the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. But for those who don't have the knower, how do you know? How, How can Paul say that nothing will separate you from the love of God? What if you blow it in your life? I mean, what if you really screw up, mess up your family, destroy your family, destroy your livelihood, and bring disrepute upon the church? How do you know that that is not going to separate you from the love of God? Where did he promise it? All of these are good answers, but I'm going to tell you exactly why Paul tells us nothing will separate us from the love of God. It's in the verses that I skipped. <laughs> now, When you're the teacher, you can do that sort of thing. Look at Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 20. Um, I, can't, I, I need cheaters. Um, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. First 29 is the critical verse. This is the verse you want to highlight. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you hear that? Those are five golden links of eternal security. And what's particularly interesting is I want you to notice who is the actor in this great plan of salvation. It's God. And those whom he predestined, first link is this, he foreknew them. The word that is translated there as foreknew means took note of. Before the foundation of the world, he took note of you. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. That's the second link. Those he predestined, he what? He called. Those he called, what? He justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's why Paul can go on the very next verse and say, what then shall we say to these things if God be for us, who can be against us? <laughs> I'll just go through them all. Those whom he foreknew, that's the first, foreknew, my five, six links, depending upon who's counting. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's why Paul can say nothing will separate us from the love of God. Why? Because it's not up to us. God is at work. Salvation is the work of God from start to finish, from stem to stern, and that's why God can say to Paul, don't be discouraged, you're going to bear fruit. Why? Because you're just an instrument, you're just a vessel. I've already chosen people in this city. Your job is not to be successful, Paul, your job is to be faithful. Yes, I think there are a couple of things that you can say to that. Um, First of all, nobody can truly say in their hearts that Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if a person truly believes that in their heart. The other thing is this. Paul gives us, and and, uh, this is the the beauty of Romans chapter 8. The whole argument holds together. Look at what Paul says. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor what? Anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anything else in all of creation means you. In other words, you can't even separate yourself if you're a Christian. If you you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. Even your worst sin cannot do it because Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is God is going to use even that for your ultimate good, for your ultimate benefit. That's why I say, as much as some of us may have that internal witness of the Holy Spirit, I know in my knower. The problem with that is that it can be viewed as subjective. What we need is to be able to stand on the truth of God's word, not on what you feel inside. And I'll tell you why. Because your feelings will play tricks on you. There are those moments in the Christian life when you have no doubt that God exists. You just hit the lottery. It's Easter morning. The church is filled with people. It looks glorious. The preacher's on that particular Sunday. I mean, he's doing a pretty good job. I'm actually getting something out of this. I'm not falling asleep. And the choir is glorious. And you walk out of church and you say, how can somebody not believe in God? But there are those other moments when you've blown it in your life, when you know you've sinned and everybody else knows you've sinned and you brought disrepute upon yourself and upon your family and you go to church and the only thing you hear is the law, the law, the law. Straighten yourself out. Pull yourselves up by your bootstrap and you come out of there and you're thinking, I'm finished. I'm lost. And in those moments, you better not trust your feelings, my friends, because your feelings are going to lead you to despair. At that moment, what you need is to stand on the promises of God. And what is the promise? The promise is this, that those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He will glorify. And because of that, nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither height, nor depth, neither angels, nor principality, neither things present, nor things to come. Nothing, not even you, Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. And that's how we know. And because we know that, we persevere. We keep on keeping on. Those he doesn't call... That's for next week. Um, uh, It's a great question, and this is the great question of election. This is the great doctrine of election. And and, and let me come back to it. Um, It's not that I want to put you off. It's just that it is a comprehensive um, discussion that we need to have. Um, The short answer is read sometime through Romans chapters 9 through 11, and, and, and you get a little bit of a picture of this. Now you might think to yourself, well God, you know, sort of you know. I don't want you to picture God as sort of, you know, picking a daisy and saying I love him, I love him not, I love him, I love him not. <laughs> it's nothing like that. When, we, when we're dealing with this great doctrine of God's sovereign election, there is a part of us that looks at that and says, well that's, that's pretty you know, God doesn't, doesn't appear to have a reason. Well, God has a reason. It's just secret to us. We just don't know what it is. But One way of looking at it is not looking at it from a human perspective. I understand uh, when we look at it from a human perspective, we're filled with anxiety. (gasps) But let's look at it from God's perspective, and then I'm going to just say one more thing to you, and that is let's look at it as parents. When you look at it from a human perspective, God's got to give everybody a a fair deal. Everybody has to have the same chance, right? Well, let's ask the question, How many people have sinned in the world? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Okay, well, you know your scripture, see? So you're you're getting the answer. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. So, what do we all deserve? Alright, so if God decided, all right, I've had it with the human race, everybody's done. Would we get what we deserve? Everybody would get justice. But what if God decides to save one? Is there mercy? Because he doesn't have to save any, does he? The fact that he saves one, there's mercy. The fact that he saves many is great mercy. Now we say, well, I'm not sure I like that. How many of you parents have ever or grandparents have ever prayed for the salvation of your children and your grandchildren? Let me see a show of hands. And how many of you have ever said something like this to the Lord? I don't care, Lord, what you have to do. If you have to drag them in by their hair, kicking and screaming, save my child. How many of you have ever felt like that? Be honest. Well, what about their free will? They say, well, I want free will. But I don't want my kids to have any free will, Lord. I want you to drag them in by their hair. See, I think what we can say on one level is nobody is ever going to be ashamed for God. When we get to heaven, nobody is ever going to be ashamed for God. We will see at that point his great plan of salvation and it will make perfect sense to us. But right now, As Paul says in the same epistle to the Romans, we see through a glass dimly. I always say there are gonna be three surprises when you get to heaven. You're gonna be surprised who's there. You're gonna be surprised at who's not there. And you're gonna be real surprised that you're there. So we'll come back to that question. It's a great question, it's important. But what I wanna say to you is if you're a Christian today, even though you may be filled with doubts and fears and anxieties and discouragement, and you think to yourself, I'm unworthy. Remember this, if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, if he's your savior, then that simply means before the foundation of the world, before you were knit together in your mother's womb, he took note of you. He took note of you, and he predestined you, and he called you, and he justified you, and the promise is no matter what this world throws at you, he's going to glorify you. Stand on that promise, and that will give you the courage to face tomorrow, whatever tomorrow brings. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy, and we thank you for the word of encouragement that you brought to your Apostle Paul and we thank you, Lord, that he was flesh and blood like the rest of us, filled with doubts, fears, anxieties, but you strengthened him. Strengthen us, Lord. Give courage to us that we may face tomorrow with a reasonable and holy hope. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.